You know, I had a really neat experience while Pastor Joyce was reading the devotion this morning. You know, she was talking about the importance of lifting your eyes above the waves, you know. And most of you know, I, I got saved in the Coast Guard. That's my background. And, and there were times, and I'm thinking of this while she's praying that, you know, keep your eye above the waves. I'm thinking about the times we'd go out on a 44-foot motor lifeboat, and, you know, that's the boat they send out when they can't send anything else out. And, you know, sometimes it's like 40-foot swells. And I don't know if you know how they measure swells. They don't measure swells from the bottom. They measure swells from where they started. So you've got the swell, and then you have the water that used to be there. So when you're at the bottom of the trough, the top of the 40-foot swell is about 60 feet away. It's, it's way up there. And I can remember standing on, 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 the, on, on the deck of a 44, looking up. And when she said, you have to keep your eyes above the waves, I thought, you can't. It's physically impossible. And then I, this voice in my head said, you can if you look straight up. <laughs> yeah. So that was good. That was good. That's my testimony today. Open your Bibles, if you would, Ephesians chapter 2. I've done that, too. I have looked straight up. Dear God. Uh, we're continuing in our study of the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And again, we're so glad for all of our visitors this morning. We hope you feel comfortable and welcome. We have been talking, again, about the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. I think this is our fourth Sunday. And so far we have seen, this is a letter about status, our status. Um, we began in the first chapter with this in verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So we have this status. It is literally the status of a son. That's what the word adoption means. Uh, in the eyes of the kingdom of God, we are adopted children of God. Our status is a product of our redemption. There's probably a handful in here old enough to remember Otis. That old hymn we used to sing, Redeemed, How I Love to Proclaim It. Redeemed through the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through His infinite mercy. What's the next line? His child and forever. Yeah, yeah. We should still sing that one. That one's really good, yeah. So we're, we're, we have this status through redemption. We're redeemed of the Lord, new status. And there's some things you need to be conscious of. You know, you're not born into a family. You're adopted into a family. You have to learn the rules of a new family, how things work in the new family. So there's some things that the Ephesians needed to know, some things we need to know. Paul said in verse 18, I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know Three things, and we're going to keep coming back to these three things. Paul said, you Ephesian folks need to know this, the hope of his calling, the hope that is ours by his calling upon our lives, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, his inheritance, we are his inheritance. We are what Jesus gets out of the deal. I'm still trying to work through that one. <laughs> and the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Those are the three things Paul said. I'm really praying that your heart would be open to understand these three things. And then we, we observed last week that those, those observations he makes, these things he wants the church to understand, that there's a basis upon which they can believe them. They stand on a foundation. And he says in verse 19, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. And then he goes on in the next four verses to, to list all the things that God did in the strength of his might. And it relates specifically 
to Jesus' resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of power. You know, sometimes in our Christian walk, and I think I'm as guilty of this as anybody, we look at, at the crucifixion and go, yes, my sins are paid for. And we look at the resurrection and the empty grave and we go, yeah, I have new life. But we stop there. And we don't attribute to Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father all the importance that we should. And we really should. Because Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father plays a critical role in our redemption. Peter put it this way on the day of Pentecost. He said this is in Acts 2.33. We talked about this back on the day of Pentecost. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. So the pouring out of the, of the Spirit of God on the church, the pouring out of the Spirit in our lives is dependent upon the fact that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. Like Peter said on that Pentecost, that Pentecost Sunday, that the fact that the Spirit of God was poured out was evidence that Jesus had ascended to the right hand of the Father because there was no other way it could happen. So we need to be mindful of the importance, the centrality of Jesus' ascension, right? Because of his ascension, we have the, the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we might grow in righteousness and holiness, live our lives as living testimonies, know his presence daily, all of that dependent upon his ascension. That's our status now. It's the status of the Ephesian believers when they got this letter, right? Now, in chapter 2, which is our focus this morning, in chapter 2, Paul, like, turns the clock back. He's been talking about where they are or where we are in our saved, redeemed status. He says, now I want to go back and look at where we were, where you were, where, where we were, right? So that's what we're going to pick it up. Chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says this. I'm going to read this more slowly than I normally do. Because I really want you to work at absorbing each word. It's an extraordinary passage of Scripture. Paul writes this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Father, as we encounter such magnificent truth 
in your word this morning. Just give us, Father, as Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that their minds would be opened, the light of their, of their mind, their eyes would be opened, Father, to see these incredible things. Help us, Father, both in its, its being spoken and in its being heard, Father. We want to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the second chapter, the apostle, speaking by the inspiration of the Spirit, shifts from the status of the believer in the present to the status they had before. Now the believer lives in the place of the beloved child before something very different. And I think it's so important to get this. I think it's so important to get what Paul's talking about here because, again, it's so common for us to you know, accept salvation and rejoice in the free gift of eternal life. I've been saved from the, the consequences of my sin, the eternal consequences. I'm not going to hell. Thank you, Jesus. Um, and let me stop there. We've got like our insurance, life insurance, all paid, our eternal life insurance all paid up. We're good. I can stop there. Um, but we forget, or and we forget, we're stepping into a relationship. And relationships, at least meaningful relationships, are usually dynamic. They change. They, they develop. They evolve. They don't stay the same. And if you try to stay the same, the tendency is to move back. You've got to move forward or you're going to move back. So I think it's really important to get this point because we are now his adopted children. That is our status. And we have to avoid the tendency to say, I'm close enough. I don't need to get any closer. No, no, no. It is in our greatest interest to continue to move closer to our Father. When we get this, things change. We move from being, tra- being saved, thank God we're saved, from being saved to being transformed, to having his character worked out in us, to being his disciple. John chapter 8, 31, Jesus said to those Jews who, were, who had believed in him, he's talking to Jews that believed in him, and he said to them, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And that word abide is a completely relational word. It means to live in and among. If we make his word our dwelling, if his word makes its dwelling within us, it's all relational, right? Now, one thing I do want to say, because I know that some folks in our fellowship um, had the whole issue of, of discipleship, well, pretty well rammed down their throat when they were kids, and we don't want to make a mistake of, of not addressing that. We, we should never confuse the methods of discipleship with being a disciple. We are disciples of Christ by nature of, of his spirit indwelling us. The methods of discipleship, studying our Bible, praying, meditating on his word, sharing our faith, gathering in fellowship, that's just what disciples do. But none of that makes us a disciple. We become a disciple by the shed blood of the lamb and the power of his spirit dwelling within us. We then walk in discipleship. We don't want to confuse those. So let's talk about where they were or where we were as Paul starts this passage. Um, he says, chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You know, if you read your Bible at all and you read the writings of Paul at all, you know that Paul has a very fluid relationship with sentence structure. You know, you, you read Paul's sentence and you get to the end of the sentence and you can't remember where he was when he started. It's just the way he writes. He's kind of a thought bubble guy. That's the way he communicates. Not here. Not here. He said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You know, there's a thing about death. It doesn't matter how you get there. You're still dead. 
you know, you, we, we can die from some horrific disease or from some slow, lingering disease. We can die in a, in a, instantly in, in a vehicle accident or we can go to sleep and not like, you're still dead. After you die, you're dead. And he said, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. It, it doesn't matter the, the specifics of our sin. We were dead in them. You know, it could be something that, you know, I could have been caught up in something that if people knew about it, they'd go, oh, that is the grossest thing I've ever heard in my life. I can't believe it. Or it could be in something as simply like, well, that's not really that bad. I mean, you know, bad habit, you know. No, dead is dead. Dead in our trespasses and sins, right? Doesn't matter what the cause of death was. Because, and, and you think about the list. Nobody say anything. But think about the junk that led you to bend the knee and say, Lord Jesus, I need your forgiveness. Think about whatever it was you were in, that I was in, that led me to bend the knee and say, dear God, I need your forgiveness. I need salvation. Whatever title you put on it, replace that title with what Paul says here. Because Paul is giving us an accurate description of what it was because the specifics don't make that much difference once you're dead. Paul said, here's what you were actually in. Verse 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. That's what our sin was. You can, you can replace whatever the specifics, whatever the details, your sin or mine, with this. Walking according to the course of this world. Walking according to the prince of the air, the evil one. We walked according to that and, by definition, children of wrath. Let that one soak in. It didn't matter how minor you may think what you were doing was or what I was doing was or how serious it was. It doesn't matter the nature of the sin. It all brought us to the place or I should say proceeded from the place that we were by nature. It grew out of our very being. The very depth of who we are produced the carnality that led us to the evil that caused us to say, dear God, I need your forgiveness. What a sorry state. Children of wrath, now let's be honest, we all think as bad as I was, there were people who were worse. In fact, there's a lot of people who were worse. Yeah. As bad as I was, there were people who were worse. Look what he says here. We were children of wrath, even as the rest. All the same. All the same. Dead in our trespasses and sins. But, oh, look at those next two words. But God. That may be the two most beautiful words in the Bible. But God. Dead in our trespasses and sin, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. This is another reason the ascension of Christ is kind of important. That's where you and I are. 
Is that good grammar? You and I are. Yeah, that's right. Okay. That's what we are. Now, we can't see it. We can't touch it. We can't taste it. But Paul asserts it here. We are seated in the right, at the right hand of the Father in Christ. Even as we are raised from the dead. That's just good Romans chapter 6 stuff. If you don't understand that, when you get home today, read Romans 6. Lays it right out. Romans 6 is essentially this. There's an empty grave in Jerusalem. Actually, just outside of town. There's an empty grave. Who was buried there? I was. Yeah, Jesus was buried there. But Romans 6 tells us when he was buried there, you and I were buried there. And so when he was raised from that tomb, when he walked out of that tomb, we walked out with him. And when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, we ascended with him. That is why we have the access and prayer that we do, because we are seated at the right hand of the Father. That's this marvelous status that we have, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So what are the consequences of this, this being raised up with him, being seated with him? My identification with Christ. Verse 6, raised up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. And why is that so important to know? Well, in verses 7 through 10, Paul tells us exactly why God has done this the purposes for which God has done this, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Meaning that we haven't begun to see the benefit that is ours. This is, we're just at the starting point of seeing all the goodness that God will pour into our lives. It is an eternal matter. It will only be an eternity that we even begin to see the fullness of all he has. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. We'll talk more about that. Not as a result of works that no one should boast. We're going to stand in eternity, and I would not be at all surprised to have an angel walk up to me and say, how in the world did you get here? I know how you lived. Well, it's very simple. When Jesus got here, I got it with him. He just hadn't seen me yet. The power of his ascension made real in our lives. Again, we've just begun. We've just begun to um, see the benefit of that. The question, though, because that's in eternity, and I can believe that, and that's, I love that. It's marvelous. But how does that look now? For the Ephesian church, as Paul is writing to them, what are they supposed to glean from this? What's supposed to be happening in their here and now? Well, to do that and to find out what's supposed to happen in our here and now, based on what I anticipate of eternity, we have to back up a little bit because there's this really neat contrast. There's actually several contrasts. But there's this contrast that Paul wants them to see, and it's really critical. And part of it's obvious, how I was, dead in my trespasses and sin, how I am now, alive together with Christ. But how do I bring that into my everyday experience, right? I mean, the part about being dead in my trespasses and sins, that was easy. I mean, I brought that into my everyday experience without even trying, because it was my nature. My nature, children of wrath. But how do I bring this whole thing of bringing alive together with Christ, those three things he talked about, the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and the surpassing power of his greatness toward us. How do I bring that into the present day. Well, if you remember last week, Paul said this, after he gave that list of three things, he said, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. In accordance with the working 
of the strength of his might. The things Paul said we need to be thinking about now, focusing on now, we should expect they're in accordance with the working of his might. There's the contrast. Because if you look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul said this, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according, same word, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. So it's all a matter of what we walk according to. It all hinges on that single word. That's where the difference shows up. Then we walked according to the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. Now we walk according to the strength of his might. Well, what does this word according really mean? It's a fascinating word. Uh, it's a short word, kata. It's just kata, just a short word, right? It's incredibly common. It occurs more than 1,000 times in the New Testament. It occurs more than 1,500 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's the word they used all the time. But what makes it really interesting is it's a word that has almost antithetical meanings. Right? The word is usually translated as against. So when Jesus told his disciples that they should expect it, that people would say all manner of things against them, it's the word he used. It's the word that is often connected with the word accusation, when an accusation was levied against someone. It almost always has this negative connotation, against it, right? It, it literally means a downward movement. So as we might say in our modern vernacular, when someone talks down to you, that's generally not a compliment, right? Or, and this may be a little bit dated, when somebody puts a, a put down on you. Do we still use that one? Put down, that one still use? Same idea, it's negative, right? It normally has a negative connotation. But then consider this. In the second century, when they wanted to put names on the Gospels, because the Gospels were just anonymous for the first you know, roughly 100 years, the way they described the Gospels, they said, kata mateon, against Matthew. Kata lukan, kata markan, kata nyu, against. Now, some of your Bibles say the Gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. What's the deal? It's simple. Think of this word against the way an extension ladder works. You know, a step ladder, got two sides. You can put it in the middle of a room and it works. An extension ladder doesn't work in the middle of a room because you have to lean it against the wall. If you don't lean it against the wall, it, it's not a ladder, it's, it's a plank, right? You have to lean it against something. In order to work, it has to rely on something. So what the early church was saying was the testimony of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John was dependent upon or was reliant upon the integrity of the men that wrote it. Yes, writing by the inspiration of the Spirit, but it was still dependent on their... After all, they were there, except for Luke, who did a lot of investigating. And the testimony of the Gospels rested against these things. So that, that downward visual that we need to get from this word not only has the negative connotation of being against somebody, it also has the connotation of resting on something or relying on something. So what is Paul saying in this context? He said, we used to walk resting upon or reliant upon the things of this world and of the evil one. Whereas now we walk resting upon, reliant upon, the strength of his might. That's what we rely upon.
So as, as I try to bring this in, in, into, into kind of a practical, in my own understanding, I think of my mom. My mom used to sew a lot. And she would lay the cloth on the table, and then she would take the pattern and lay it against the cloth. And then she would, you know, pin it, and then she would cut it, and then she would sew it. Boom. Be a dress, right? Right? Or back, maybe, if, if you're not into that illustration, um, back when I, when, I, when I did serve in the Coast Guard, it was my privilege to serve on a really old ship. I mean, it was old. It was so old. I looked it up once. The ship I served on was commissioned six months after my dad's submarine in World War II. That's how old it was. It was old, right? It was so old, we couldn't get parts. We had to make parts. And one of the parts we had to make the most often was a gasket, one particular gasket. So how do you make it? We'd pull the part off the engine, lay it on the counter, lay the gasket material right on top of it, and then take a little hammer and gasket. We did it by laying it against the pattern of the part that we needed it to match. In both of those examples, the common ground is the very close, intimate connection between the two parts, right? My mom didn't just toss the pattern on the cloth and zip, 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 zip. You didn't just toss, you know, the, the gasket material down there and start whacking away with a hammer. That would not have been a good thing. It, the usefulness of the product was based on the accuracy of the copy. Based upon, and the accuracy of the copy was wholly based upon the intimate connection, the close, immediate connection of the two things. So that's what Paul is saying to the Ephesian church. You want to progress in your relationship with Christ. You want to grow in your relationship with Christ. You want to see Christ manifested in your life. You have got to stay in such close, intimate contact with him that there's, there's no movement. To be according to something else. To be according to someone else. Now, the flaw in both of those analogies is they're entirely external. That's flaw in both of those analogies. The work that Christ does in us is first and foremost internal and is only later mattered externally. But it is all a product of the closeness, the immediateness of the contact. Requires we ask three questions of ourselves. What exactly am I being patterned after? What am I in close, immediate contact to more than anything else? Now, we have to be in contact with the world that we're of no value to the world. We have to be in contact with unsaved people or they're never going to get saved. But that should not be our most immediate, our most vital, or our most intimate connections. What am I allowing myself to come into close contact with? What is the nature of that contact? Is it genuinely close, immediate, even intimate? I remember watching my mom put all those pins in the cloth because she didn't want there to be any movement. She wanted to get those two as close as she could. And then what happens after contact is established? She'd pin the cloth together, and then she would... Anything that did not conform to the pattern went away. When we took that little hammer and cut that gasket out, anything that was not according to the pattern was taken away. That's the hard part. Because there's so much still of that old person in us that that child of wrath still has such a voice. And the 
only way we overcome it is by that power that he spoke of, the strength of his might. I will not do it in my own strength, right? It's a product of his working in our lives. It's our task to simply cooperate. And when we follow the disciplines of prayer and study and fellowship, we're just cooperating. In our strivings against sin, we're just cooperating with what he wants to do. Can we truly believe that he is more interested in the holiness of my life than I am? And that he is more active in the holiness of my life than I am? Right? Well, consider this, last verse, verse 10. For we are his workmanship. His workmanship. He is at work in us. He is actively working in us to perfect his likeness in us. It is not wholly dependent on us. The greatest part falls to him. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That is the same word the authors of the New Testament used when they talked about creation itself. So the same power that spoke the cosmos into order, that sustains all things, that same power is working in you and in me to perfect his likeness. There's two different ways you can take this passage. You can look at the passage and go, oh, this is another example of how messed up I am and another example of how hard I have to work and all of the, you know, these sins I need to repent of and get out of my life, all of which is true. But more importantly, it is an encouragement, an encouragement to us to know that as we are about that task, we're doing the smallest part. We are doing the smallest part. The greater part is the strength of his might as we trust in him. We are indeed his workmanship. That project he, can, he will lift up and show to his father and said, see what I did in this one. Father, I thank you so much for your word, Lord. Father, because it is, as we, as we endeavor, Father, if, if we're sincere in our faith at all, Father, we can become so discouraged as we look at, Father, just the, the junk that just can, seems to continue to want to hang on, Lord, and we repent of it and we look to you, Father, and we, we make honest and sincere effort as we must, Lord, to walk in holiness. Ah, oh, but Lord, it is so wonderful to know that as we are doing our part, the smaller part, First of all, Father, that even in our struggles, our status as your adopted children doesn't change. That same love that motivated you to call us your children guarantees that you still call us your children and you love and embrace us even in our weaknesses, Lord. But that same love motivates you, Father, to work in our lives, crafting us, Lord, crafting us, to reflect your image and your glory. Father, our prayer this morning is you give us the faith and confidence to believe that and to trust in it, Father, to lend ourselves deliberately and consciously to the work of your Spirit, giving you the room and the space, Lord, to craft your image in us, Lord, knowing confidently that that is your goal for us, Lord. And because you are who you are, we can be confident it will happen.
Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.